Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we connect to our fiercest fuck community of survivors and badassery ensues. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a clinical psychologist and survivor, and I love to bring us together to share our stories as well as practical tips to recover and reclaim our lives. As a community, we have truly formidable power to change our world, so thank you so much for being here. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors of gender-based violence. Some of these discussions may be triggering and contain adult content. Please be mindful of your needs throughout. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics to discuss. We're going to be discussing consent and specifically consent with teens and LGBTQ plus teens and how we communicate this. But I also think there's going to be a lot of good takeaways for all of us adults learning about consent as well. When we learn about a topic, being able to teach it is one of the best ways that we learn about it. And I have this fantastic guest here to talk about this with us. She's back and she's one of my friends and colleagues. Hi, Kaylee. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. Yes, my name is Kaylee Cornelison. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a social worker, therapist, trainer and facilitator and consultant. And mostly my work focuses on teens and young adults. I work with that age group in therapy, but I also do a lot of training and professional development for the caring adults in young people's lives. So teachers, healthcare providers, other therapists and social workers, all those good folks. Yeah. So a little bit about me is I'm a theater kid at heart. So excited to be getting just to talk <laughs> for as long as we get to talk today. It's one of my favorites. I'm a parent to a 15-month-old little baby. And just to share, because of the nature of your podcast, I'm also a survivor. So wanted to identify myself that way too. Excellent. Thank you so much and, and welcome. I am so excited, as I said, about discussing this. I'm going to work very hard to contain myself to an outline. I think it's like my Virgo is battling with my little Sagittarius moon here that just wants to <laughs> go off. In part because personally learning about consent and the ways in which our different communities engage in consent was incredibly healing and liberating for me in my own recovery. And so it's become one of my favorite topics to discuss, especially because I find that our like cis heteronormative patriarchal culture the definition of consent really is set up to reinforce rape culture and gender-based violence and to continue to uphold patriarchal standards and the power in that way in our culture where consent is like, <laughs> I always say that it's like a bouncer outside of a club that's just like, enter if you dare, go on in. But once you're inside, there's nobody there to govern any kind of thing and anything can happen. And there's this sense of like, once you say yes, in any kind of way, any kind of way that somebody believes that a yes can come, that then that's it. You can't say no. You can't change things. You can't change your mind. You can't change what you're doing. You can't go to a different location. You can't go to a different club. 
this is it. And even if we intellectually know that's not the case, that we are allowed to do all of these things in practice, it's really, really difficult for people to step out of that paradigm. As you can see, I'm already like my Sagittarius moon is winning here. I'm already launching into it. So I think especially, you know, as an adult, you know, and all of us adults were teens at one point in our lives, understand the vulnerability that they experience, especially in relationships. And so this topic is extremely near and dear to my heart for teens. We talked a little bit about consent and defining this. And you talked about that you describe it as enthusiastic consent. Can you define that for us, what enthusiastic consent is and examples of what that looks like or sounds like, and especially with what that would look like and sound like with teens? I like to say enthusiastic consent because I think especially, I think for all of us, but I think especially in my experience teaching this content to teens and young adults, a lot of times this like idea, and you were describing it as affirmative consent, and I think that's right on too, because often they're thinking of like, well, I'm just being passive. Like, I'm not saying no, I'm not saying yes. And so that's good enough. Or my partner's not saying no, and they're not saying yes. So that's good enough, which no, we want it to be enthusiastic, given freely. There's no coercion, or I'm not afraid that something bad's going to happen if I say no. We always talk about like, you have to get consent every single time. And the way that I would, I have described it to young people. And again, sometimes we kind of simplify because it helps get the point of cross. I would say every level sexual activity. So if we're kissing versus touching versus some penetration is happening or I'm putting my hand under your shirt, like we need to be getting consent at every level. Could be more complicated than that, of course, but to sort of get that idea in their minds, that's how I would describe it for them. That it's not passive. The thing that I could always say, and they would laugh at this, that, that's part of kind of building that rapport is like, your partner just can't be laying there like a dead fish. And you think that's, yes. <laughs> they need to be showing you, right, with their words, with their body language, all of that. And the number one thing that I will tell you trips young people up, I think this is true for adults, is that they say, but it's awkward. Okay, cool. I hear that. Yeah, it can be awkward. But would you rather be awkward or would you rather risk doing something to someone that they don't want to have? Thinking about it that way. And I also will talk to them about like the most clear, risk-free way is to verbally have the conversation. Do you like this? Do you want to do this? Can I do this? But there are also instances where the person might be showing you consent with their body language, with their facial expression. You still want to be checking in verbally. Those can be signs, but that's sort of like consent 2.0, right? When you're just getting to know someone and you want to be really sure, we always want to be really sure, but using verbal communication is the safest way to go. And that's how I would describe it to young people. There's a fun acronym. I think it started with Planned Parenthood. I'm pretty sure it's FRIES. Have you heard this, Kelsey? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it stands for freely given, reversible. Oh, that's the part I didn't say before. You can always take your consent back. You can. Informed, enthusiastic, and specific. 
So it's for a specific thing. It's informed in that, like, I know if you have an STI, you've told me that, like, with informed because we've talked about using birth control or X, Y, you know, making sure that we're on the same page about all those different pieces. So that's a fun little acronym we can use (laughs) to remember all the things we need to remember about consent. Yeah. But I love to like I've seen memes where it's like enthusiastic consent is a hell's yes. Yeah. You know, that it's not just a like, especially speaking to the passivity, it's not just like, okay, giving in. It's a yeah. hell yes. And settling for nothing less kind of thing than a hell yes within ourselves, you know, yeah. when we're giving consent as well. Because I think about consent as an action and then consent as a culture. And that's what comes up for me, especially around that like creating consent culture can be one of the most powerful tools to really dismantle rape culture. You know, a sense that especially like with when you're talking about informed consent, enthusiastic consent, embracing the awkward, you know, practicing communication skills. It's awkward because of rape culture telling us that it's hotter when people don't say anything or saying that sex is so much better or sexual experiences are so much better when like you're just caught up in the passion and no one's talking and you're throwing people into walls and like just overwhelmed with all of this when those are also the situations in which people might be experiencing violence or something very traumatic and especially when what we've learned about how the freeze response is the most common response in sexual assault which means that the other person says nothing And, you know, if anything, either is engaging in placating behaviors where they're going along with it or has completely shut down being like the dead fish, that actually is an indicator that they are in a trauma response, not just like that they're like kind of uninterested. And if we had more of a consent culture, those kinds of things wouldn't happen because Mm -hmm. we would normalize communication about this stuff. It wouldn't feel awkward to talk about these things information and being informed around consent is like, yeah, what am I consenting to? Not just like, what are each of us bringing into this space, but like, what do I want to see happen? And I think we talked about this a little bit before too, of like, it blew my mind when I learned from our kink community, how consent can also be like, what do I desire? And how do I plan out something, an experience that I know is going to be so wonderful and pleasurable and delicious and fantastic and mind-blowing ahead of time. And if anything, I'm like, my Virgo mind would be totally seduced by somebody. <laughs> Here's the outline of our experience together. But that also being about informed consent is like, I know what's going to happen. I also know that what I want to experience, I also know within myself how to read the signs or at least how to advocate for when I'm not feeling it. That's also something that exists in this relationship that we're both holding space for us to also enter that yellow light area of, I don't really know. I want to slow down. I need some space to figure this out. What you said was making me think about young people not really knowing what they like yet. Exactly. They're just starting to have sexual experiences and, you know, maybe they've explored with themselves alone or there's some cool parents out there who are buying sex toys for their kids and I think that's very rad and very cool because 
that's the safest kind of sex that you can't have. Right. So when we're trying to think about STI and pregnancy prevention. I'm going to, my sex educator hat may come on a little bit in this conversation. But that is why it's just so important to be having those conversations with young people. And like, yeah, you can say like, yeah, I want to try that thing. And then halfway through, you're like, oh, no, I don't like it. You can change your mind at any point in time. And the other thing is that I didn't mention before is that having someone ask you over and over and over and over and over to do something that they want to do and it wears you down and you eventually say yes, that's not real consent either. And I think that does sometimes happen in all kinds of relationships with for young people, especially like maybe you're just not emotionally ready to engage in a certain activity or you don't really want to engage in a certain activity. And that's okay. You can say no, but yeah, the pressuring. And a lot of times we see that within the context of unhealthy and abusive relationships. The other thing that you were making me think of is the shift that we're seeing. I, I don't feel like it's being allowed in a lot of spaces, but pleasure-based sex education. My sex educator heart is full thinking about this for young people because it's exploding. Yeah. So much of our sex ed is about pregnancy prevention, which is very heteronormative in the first place, and STI prevention, which is all focused on negative outcomes. And young people, I think, are sick and tired of talking about how they're risky behaviors, how they're doing something wrong. You know, let's talk about like, well, why do young people have sex? Why do they engage in sexual activity? There's more reasons than you and I can come up with between the two of us. It's as different and as varied as there are young people out there, right? And so if we could shift sex education, and this work is being done by very cool people all over the country, and I'm sure in other countries too, to have more of those conversations about like, well, why would you have sex? And how do you know what feels good for you? And consent cannot be unlinked from the pleasure conversation because it is integral to that. If we could talk about sex and sexual health in that way more, what a world. Talk about consent culture, pleasure. Everyone would be having better sex as adults too. I know for a (laughs) lot of folks, especially people maybe who are listening who are parents or caregivers of teens, thinking about them engaging in sexual activity is scary because there, there are risks involved. Of course there are. And it's a part of normal adolescent development. I always kind of feel sheepish when I'm saying that to caregivers and parents, too. It's like, this is what they're supposed to be doing. But we have created a culture in the United States in particular where we shame it. We say it's bad. We say it's wrong. We force young people to, like, engage in that sexual activity, like, in their cars and unsafe places Mm -hmm. because it's so stigmatized. The Netherlands does some really cool stuff on like their culture around young people having sex. Again, I'm going down a different rabbit hole than maybe consent, but I think (laughs) it's all wrapped up and together. Yeah, no, I love that idea. Pleasure-based sex education, especially because that does kind of speak to consent culture and this like fear-based sex education that we have where we're like, oh, you know, it's for their health and it's, safety and then it also very quickly goes into that lovely like little christo fascist like space of like abstinence is the only way it's only yeah it's the only safe thing it's the only safe thing because you know like pretty much no matter what you do no matter what goes where you're all gonna end up pregnant and dead 
all right. of us, every single one of us. It makes and, me think of that scene from Mean Girls always. You will get yeah. chlamydia and you will die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And I also wonder if parents would feel less squeamish about their kids being sexually active if we weren't raised with that as well, like in oh, the yeah. generations before us, too, because right. I know it's not like it just started. Like this has been something that's been part of our culture for, you know, probably hundreds of years. If it was discussed for all of us as though this is a normal part of being a human, these are very normative types of interactions, can be a very enjoyable part of life. Here's all the different ways that you can enjoy it. Here's the different ways that you can experience this for yourself and what feels good for your body. And here are the things you need to be able to do that and like keep your body in a place where you want it to be with regards to health and safety and reproduction, you know, and that yeah. also speaks to like more of a very, very choice oriented instruction as well, that it's like you can do what you want with your body and here's how to be able to make sure that you can do what you want with your body. I agree. And I think a lot of young people too are, they don't know what we mean when we say sex because mm-hmm. it means a lot of different things. And so being just more explicit about like oral sex is this, anal sex is this, intercourse is this, right? And we're thinking about like our LGBTQ plus young people, right. what is sex to them? Like this mm-hmm. whole outdated idea of virginity. What does it even mean? Yeah. We could go there. I know, I'm like, it. Work. <laughs> I, I know that uh, we wanted to talk specifically about LGBTQ youth. And I think that brings up the way that sexual relationships with LGBTQ people of all ages are diminished as less than this like heteropatriarchal image of sex being pretty much only intercourse, only heterosexual intercourse. That is the only way to feel intimate and to actually engage in this. And we reinforce that with our sex education by heavily emphasizing intercourse is sex, but it's also the way that you're going to get pregnant and die, you know, that this is what's going to happen. And there's, at least when I was in school, there was zero education for LGBTQ youth around sex and sexual health. There was barely education for us. I was one of the schools that got that diagram of the vulva that had like no clitoris or any like body parts. Like, and they were just like, no, it's just this blurred out part. And I was like, I don't think it's blurred out on my body. Right. (laughs) Did they show you an actual penis or was that appropriate for? Yes, of course they showed us. Oh, great. We get to see that. We even got to see like specific parts of the penis and the glands and what the glands do because that's all about like pleasure for men for cis men but i'm like <laughs> all of the things that i'm wanting to go off on but our own sex ed trauma is coming up yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> you know but that i love this kind of future visioning of what the world could be like if we actually were oriented more towards consent culture including like enthusiastic consent but like pleasure-based sex education And even like we can start some of this like right now, y'all, like we can start engaging in pleasure-based consent and information right now for ourselves. When we're talking about teens with consent and consent education and advocacy, you know, what's going on like right now with the world? Because I'm speaking from my own experience when I was in high school and when I was a therapist in high schools, which I absolutely loved 
Like it was still one of those topics that teens just really did not want to discuss. They would kind of do it in this. It was interesting. They would do this in this like in your face, but don't talk about it way. Like they would wear like condoms on like their key rings and stuff like that. (laughs) But then like if I brought it up or talked to them about it and asked if they had any questions, they're like, nope. Yeah. Crickets. (laughs) And it's like, okay. But we also wanted to specifically talk about LGBTQ youth around consent and consent culture. This was something you brought up as a specific population that we want to focus on. And so I wanted to hear more about your thoughts on this. I think that the current circumstances, I think it's similar to what you're describing. I think it's just a mixed bag because on the one hand, you know, thinking back to when I was in high school, even they just have access to so much more information. They can Google anything. Mm -hmm. I think they do. (laughs) They can follow some really cool people on social media. They can order that book from wherever that talks about all the things that they want to know about, you know. So on that hand, I think that's really awesome and cool. And I think that's true, too, for LGBTQ plus young people. As a queer kid who didn't know I was queer, Gosh, like even having some like people that I just saw on social media, that would have been huge for me at Mm -hmm. that age. And I think a lot of them have access to that. On the other hand, they have access to all of that. They have access to ethical porn. They have access to really bad resources that are out there. People on social media, like spreading false information. What's a spade tape? Yeah, like unsafe pregnancy prevention, unsafe STI treatment. Like there's just so much nonsense out there too. Mm-hmm. So that worries me. And I think the the answer to a lot of that is helping young people just be savvy consumers of media, which Ooh, yeah. as adults, it's hard for us because we don't know how to be savvy consumers of media. <laughs> a lot of times. Um, I think we have seen this uh, playing out in a lot of spaces. Helping them to decipher what is good information and what distorted information. So that's one thing that I think is a big factor for young people today. There's some really good resources out there. It's just making sure that they're getting to those resources. For our LGBTQ plus young people, too, I do think that there are some organizations doing awesome work in making sex ed more inclusive of lots of different types of people, relationships, folks with um, different identities and different body parts and what does consent look like for those folks. But again, I think along with the pleasure-based sex ed, that's not accessible because of like political climate or Mm -hmm. school policy or, you know, there's so much evidence-based sex ed that is just banned I mean, school is where young people typically get this information. When I was teaching sex ed, we got to do abstinence plus, which was you had to say abstinence is the only way to truly prevent STIs and pregnancy. But then you could talk about all the other things. But again, it was very risk-based, right? Mm-hmm. So And fear-based. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But at least we got to do like the anonymous question box. We got to bring the full diagram and name all the the parts of the vulva and the penis. And we got to go through all of that, which was great. But, you know, as adults, as educators, as caregivers, 
even for those of us who like for me, I think about this kind of stuff a lot. And I still sometimes trip with my language too, with talking to young people. So, you know, I might mistakenly assume someone's body parts because of their gender identity. I was just at a conference this last week, and one thing that they were sharing was just using front hole as a term as opposed to like a vaginal opening for non-binary folks, for trans folks, which at first I was like, whoa, like I thought our whole thing was like we wanted to name body parts and give everyone the right words for all the parts that they have. But it makes sense because that can really cause some like gender dysmorphia if you're saying like, oh, I have a vagina, but I'm not a woman. That doesn't feel good, I think, Mm -hmm. oftentimes. So, yeah, I feel like I'm going down again a little sex ed rabbit hole, but I think that's really where this consent conversation really fits for so many young people because it has to go with that. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, I'm like, which rabbit hole shall we go down? (laughs) I'm totally on board with all of them. Because, you know, bringing up like our political climate and cultural climate and how we have this like huge movement around anti-trans bills, anti-trans different kinds of communications and stuff, how then especially people who define gender by sex and insist Mm -hmm. that it is. And as soon as you said, like talking about it as a front hole versus a vaginal opening, And I was like, oh, yeah, that actually then takes us away from the language that, you know, trans exclusionary radical feminists are using as an argument to assert their bigotry and their violence and moves it. That's where that that association comes in our brain is, you know, these people are using this as a means to exact violence. So when I think of that word and identify with it, that dysphoria, of course, is going to get huge as well as fear. And as well as like not wanting to have any kind of contact with that body part because it's the body part that people are using as an excuse or justification for their bigotry and their violence. And so I can see where shifting some language, especially when the goal is to help somebody feel ownership over their body, ownership over how to take care of their bodies, but also even if we were to do pleasure-centered sex ed like how to celebrate and engage in things and to experiment and to explore what feels pleasurable to them. Like we do want to use language that invites them in rather than activates their trauma that is like actively happening in our world right now. And I think that's that's so helpful, especially because, you know, everybody, all of us can get really hung up on language. And I definitely, when you said that, I was like, but yeah, we are supposed to be using the biologically correct language and medically correct language, like we're reducing shame around this. And then I was like, oh, yeah, but actually that language has now been co-opted by hate groups. And that might be one of the ways that we can actually, even without directly saying it, but clearly demonstrate in the way that we're teaching and talking with people that we are trans-affirming, trans-inclusive, trans-celebrating people by using language that is not going to activate their trauma. Yeah, exactly. And I will give folks hope around this topic because the conference I was at was mostly medical providers talking about gender affirming care. And these are adolescent focused medical providers. And it did give me hope in the world. Oh so the room was wonderful. 
It was very cool. That is very hopeful. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. that because it's like when we're hearing all of these scary bills getting passed and it's so terrifying, yeah. the fear is that everybody's going to be deterred from even exploring this. And it sounds like, if anything, the opposite might be happening of people being like, I'm actually going to learn more about this because it's more important now than ever yeah. for this to be something that people have access to. So people maybe that even weren't in this field before are now making sure that they are offering it, which yeah, is exactly. amazing. Yep. Getting to be that safe person. Yeah, it's cool. That was wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. I might cry yes. at some point because that is that is such a nice ray of hope. But yeah. So with thinking, coming back to consent, the first thing is like, what can adults do? Like the people primarily listening to my podcast right now are adults. Mm -hmm. And what can we do about this? And the first thing that obviously comes to my mind is like, well, as adults, we need to repair what's happened with consent in us, especially because a lot of us are survivors. You and I are both survivors. That means that consent has been something that has been violated, that has that we have a dynamic relationship with it that might include things like trauma. And that can be something, a powerful reparative experience to teach ourselves about consent and to teach ourselves about our bodies and to start to learn about pleasure-based consent for ourselves and what that looks like. You know, and like I said, like just as a, a very quick hint at the beginning, like I learned a lot through learning from the kink community. Even if you are not a kinky person, you know, just like listening to their podcasts, like following some of them on social media, hearing this language get used over and over is so liberating. And I found it to be very healing to hear how people have these conversations and engage in negotiations around experiences to not just make sure that they're safe, but also like, and not just safe in the sense of like no harm or damage is being done, but no harm or damage is being done to somebody's body and somebody's psyche, you know, and their mental health, their spiritual health, all of the things that all of that stuff is important there. But also that the goal of the experience is that there is seeking a pleasure and having a pleasurable experience or that the two of you are discussing what the goals of the experience are and you're consenting into that. It's something that you want. And having been raised in cis-heteropatriarchy myself and having lived in that for so long, it just blew my mind because it's oftentimes something, even when it is, you know, practiced of just like a gateway that we pass through. We don't know what the experience is going to hold. We have no idea if it's going to be pleasurable or worthwhile or something that we even enjoy until it's done. Even then... There's so much more to explore about it, ultimately. <laughs> and I think that, like, as adults, one of the best ways that we can show up for our youth is to actually change and fix and, and repair the things within us around consent and start to live consent culture in our own lives. Because even doing pleasure-based consent doesn't actually also only apply to sex. You can do this with all relationships, with all things that you're doing of, like, I'm only going, I'm going to make sure that I'm informed about what I'm saying yes to. I'm going to make sure that it's the experience is one that I want to have. I'm also going to 1000% allow myself and permit myself to say no at any time and to leave it. And that also means like enabling that to happen. So like if you decide that you're going to go to Disneyland with your friends, who's going to be there? 
What are the conditions that it's happening? Do you have a vehicle that you have access to or transportation if you need to leave at some point? What are all the different things? Like, is it is the relationship stable and secure enough that if you were to say no and leave or were, were to even just sit out of, of some part of experience of that, that you're not going to feel like the relationship is threatened or that people are going to be mad at you or they're going to pressure you into doing something you don't want to do. These are all ways that we can actually practice this in non-sexual experiences so that we can start to then apply it into something that feels so much more personal, intimate, and vulnerable like sex. And by modeling all of that and by embracing that ourselves, we can actually then show up for our youth so much better. That's my little soapbox of like, heal yourself and then heal the world. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. And that's a lot of what I was going to mention too, which is modeling consent in other spaces is the best thing that we can do. So I think we've seen this a more, at least I have, but even things with your little kids, like, so I have a 15 month old and I ask her, can I have a hug? And even when it breaks my mother's heart, when she says no, I have to respect that because that's setting her up for later in life to know, like, you can say no and it should be respected. And if it's that gives you lots of information. And that you're still loved in it. Absolutely. And then if she wants to change her mind later and give a hug, that's great, but I'm not going to pressure her to do that. And enforcing that with other family members too, which I think can be tricky. Tricky. brings up a lot for us, but that's one thing. Another thing too, if we're thinking about if you have teens already in your life, especially if you're like a parent or a caregiver to them, modeling that consent in other ways for them. Because I think sometimes teens in particular don't often have a lot of power and they're seeking that ownership over parts of their life. So a couple of examples could be you're having a conversation about when you're going to come into their room and what circumstances that might be under. Are you going to knock first? Are you going to come in every Wednesday afternoon when they're at school and grab their laundry? Are you always going to ask before you come in? And kind of talking through some of those boundaries together um, is one example. Another example, I know I've talked about this a lot, is going back to social media. What kind of consent are we giving and getting around how you are using your phone and using social media? Am I going to set a screen time limit for you? Are you going to have your phone in your room overnight? Or am I allowed to look into your phone? Or am am I telling you, yep, I'm going to check in your phone once a month, I want to make sure that you're safe and here's what that's going to look like. So I think those are some ways, too, that we can model consent. We can model having difficult, tricky conversations that might feel awkward to try and demystify kind of what those consent and boundary kind of conversations can look and feel like. And exactly like you said, Kelsey, know that when you come out on the other end, like if you've set a boundary with someone, that doesn't mean that you don't care about them. It actually means that you do care about them. And if they don't respect the boundary that you've set, that gives you a lot of information about that person. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think your example with your child is such a sweet one because your child gets to experience that you still love them even after she said no. And that also is setting up for consent that conditional relationships upon consent are not maybe desired relationships, that if you have to consent to things in order to maintain the relationship, that might not be a relationship you want, whatever that consent is, you know, whether that's a hug, whether that's to 
certain activities, whether it's the sex, that kind of thing. And I love like what you're describing of like parents or caregivers being able to be very transparent about the different things that are happening in the relationship with their teen around monitoring and supervising for safety or even just life. Like, you know, I'm going to enter your room to get laundry in a sense, because like being so transparent of like, here's how I'm going to be examining your phone. Here are the things that I'm looking for. These are the, the warning signs that I'm looking for. Tells them all of the things that they can also be looking for and can be mindful of, but also models that like really transparent, clear communication around consent and how nice that is. Everything feels so much more predictable and safe when we know exactly what's going on, even if it's maybe a boundary we don't like, like we don't want our parents going through our phones ever. At least we know what it is and that feels predictable and we get to make choices then based upon knowing what's going to happen. And that's what consent really enables is that we get to be more free under consent. And that's the thing that the heteropatriarchy likes to tell us, rape culture likes to tell us, is that consent is limiting our freedom to do what we want. And that's like, what's his face Tate will say, or has said, he's no longer saying it, haha, is, you know, this idea that consent is limiting and consent makes things not fun. It makes it like it's this procedure or something that's awkward and uncomfortable and it doesn't allow us to just go with the flow. And it's like, no, like you actually get to go more with the flow when consent is in place, when all of those things are in place, because you know what to expect and you also feel safe. And so you also get to surrender to just being present in the moment, which isn't that the goal. We want to be able to experience pleasure with our full selves. And when we know what's going to happen, we know that this other person is mindful of us and that we're mindful of them, that we're sharing this together. We know what to do to get out of this situation, to pause it, to slow it down, all these kinds of things. And we know all of those things are going to be respected. Like the amount of like freedom that is felt in that is just mind blowing. And I wish that was something that could be talked about so much more is the amount of freedom that comes with consent. Uh, clearly, that's that's my little selling point. Consent brings freedom. That's a bumper sticker or something. (laughs) Yes. Soon I will have initiated survivor merch and there will be a sweatshirt that says consent is freedom. (laughs) Sign me up for the (laughs) pre-sale. Well, thank you so much, Kaylee, for being here again. Do you have any final words for survivors, for allies, for any of the teens that might be listening to this now? I think consent is freedom is a good way to wrap it up. Yeah. I don't know if anything else I could top Yes, I love that. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you all for joining us in this episode and connecting with our badass community. Thank you to Sam Valentine and her awesome team at Fast Forward Productions for producing, editing, publishing, and all around making this podcast possible. If you found something in this episode that resonated with you, please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. This quick but meaningful action supports the show and helps make us more visible to other survivors and allies who might be looking for support and connection. I love connecting with listeners, survivors, and allies. So if you found something in this episode useful or interesting, please screenshot the episode and share it on your stories and tag me at Initiated Survivor. 
An important and final note, while I am a clinical psychologist, this episode and podcast is not a replacement for mental health care. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Neither the hosts nor the guests are rendering mental health or other professional advice. And this podcast does not constitute an established professional relationship. If you are looking for mental health care or professional help, please seek it out. We have some links in the show notes that may assist with this, or you can contact your insurance carrier for a referral.